Thank you for your word and the greatest gift of all, Jesus. Please prepare our hearts as we listen to Pastor Dave preach your word, and may we apply the teaching we receive. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Well, who do you think Jesus is? He's one of those guys everyone's heard about, but most people don't know what to make of him. Most people respect him, but want nothing to do with him. The Muslim believe that he's a prophet, but not the greatest prophet. And who knows believe he's a God, but just one of many gods. Jehovah Witnesses believe in Jesus, but only as the Archangel Michael. Mormons also believe in Jesus, but as a demigod who practiced polygamy. Mahatma Gandhi found Jesus to be a great teacher of humanity, but not the saviour of humanity. And the great atheist philosopher of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, didn't like Jesus for teaching about hell and cursing a fig tree, but recognised him as having a very high degree of moral goodness. And my last reference is probably from the most learned and influential theologian of the 21st century. You might have heard of her, Miley Cyrus. She tweeted, you're all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded. So forget Jesus, stars died so you can live. With all the different opinions that are out there about Jesus, there's one thing I can be certain of. They can't all be right. Now, if different people had different opinions about you and me, it's neither here nor there. Everyone can have an opinion, right? But Jesus is different, isn't he? Our opinions of Jesus aren't neither here nor there. They carry the weight of eternity and our eternal destiny. Over the past few weeks, we've seen Jesus teach and do amazing things like forgive sins, feed the thousands, exercise demons. And so everyone's been asking, who is Jesus? Well, the great thing about today's passage is that we don't have to keep guessing. We now come to the turning point in Mark's gospel. The question that's been on everyone's mind is now on Jesus' lips. So Jesus asked his disciples what people are saying about him, verse 27. 
uh, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? We're, we're now like a fly on the wall. Jesus is having a private conversation with, with his disciples, and we get to listen in. And you can just imagine the disciples walking along with Jesus, one by one, rattling off what they've heard people say who Jesus is. So verse 28, please have your Bibles open. Verse 28, they replied, the disciples said to Jesus, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, it's not surprising that people thought of Jesus as a prophet, uh, since prophets spoke the words of God and sometimes did the wonders of God. And after all, they were actually expecting a prophet. We see this in Malachi, which was written some 400 years before Jesus was born. So Malachi 4.5, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. But if they recognize that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy, then they wouldn't have brought Jesus down to science. After everything he had said and done, they see Jesus nothing more than a holy man, like a better version of you and me. And who's going to bow their knee before a better version of you and me? No one is. You see, like people today, we raise Jesus high enough to respect him, but low enough so that he has no claim on our lives. So we might like Jesus' golden rule, but we don't like his claim of absolute rule. We might like the idea of Jesus' sacrifice, but we don't like the need for his sacrifice. Just as it was 2,000 years ago, so it is today. Everyone's got an opinion about Jesus, but not everyone's right about Jesus. Everyone tries to bring Jesus down to size, but that's got to be the greatest oversight. So Jesus turns to his 12 closest disciples, his closest friends, and asks them point blank, but what about you? Verse 29, what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, before we hear the disciples respond, there's another prophecy that we need to be aware of. Just as there was a prophecy that another prophet like Elijah will come, so there was a prophecy that a king like David will come. And this was given some 1,000 years earlier. You see, when God established King David as ruler over Israel, David wanted to build God a house, a temple. But God said, no. God said, your son will do that. And I will build your house. Your descendant, David, will be my king over my people forever. And this king will not only be the one who builds my house, my temple. Listen to what the prophet Nathan says to King David around 1000 BC. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7 from verse 12. When your days are over and, and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be his father and he'll be my son. Now, this was partially fulfilled by King David's son, Solomon. Solomon ruled over Israel, built God a temple. But less than 500 years after, the temple was destroyed. And since then, the kings of Israel have been nothing more than puppet kings like King Herod. And so we now come to the disciples' response. Just as they were anticipating a prophet like Elijah, they were also anticipating the arrival of their Messiah. Verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. 
So what God declared at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1 and what the demons recognized in Mark chapter 5, the disciples now realize in Mark chapter 8. But did the disciples know what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah? Last year, during the devastating bushfires in New South Wales, you may remember it, over 480 million animals were killed, so much so that they were fearing that koalas would become extinct in the state of New South Wales. But thankfully, organisations like the World Wildlife Fund, they set up a fund to encourage people around the world to adopt a koala. Maybe you even adopted a koala at that time. So the money would go to save koalas from upscaling wildlife hospitals to protecting their habitat. That's what it means to adopt a koala, isn't it? Well, not everyone understood it that way. Have a look at this post on Reddit. My girlfriend is currently crying because she thought the $70 she wanted to spend on adopting a koala bear from the Australian bushfires was actually going to physically get her a koala bear. Like they would just FedEx that us to us and not just her becoming a sponsor. This is a, this is a woman from the United States. Now, adopt a koala clearly means different things to different people. For some, it means giving money to an organization to protect koalas. Well, for others, like this girlfriend, it literally meant getting a koala sent in the mail. And what's going on in the passage when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the part that Peter got right is that Jesus is indeed the true king in the line of David. But what he gets wrong is to think that it meant Jesus is a military king. Now imagine Peter then started telling everyone this, that Jesus is a Messiah. He's the military king, like the King David. He's, it would be disastrous if he started announcing this to everyone. Like if the girlfriend from Reddit started telling all her friends, if you give $70 to WWF, you'll get a qual in the post. It would have been a disaster. And so Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, that he is the Messiah. You see, if WWF thought that everyone was expecting a koala in the post, if they donated $70 and adopted a koala, they would have stopped the fundraising event straight away and educated everyone that adopting a koala doesn't mean you get a koala in the post. Adopting a koala means you're helping us save koalas. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about the Messiah. He wants them to know that he isn't the military king they want, but the servant king they need. So verse 31, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now what I'd like you to do is have a read of verse 31 again. And see if you can figure out from this verse, what's the most important word in this word, verse? It's the word must, isn't it? The word must modifies and controls the entire sentence. 
And that means everything in this list is absolutely necessary. Nothing can be left out. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. Jesus must be killed. He must rise again. Jesus isn't the military king they want, but the servant king they need. But for the disciples, this this idea that the Messiah would suffer made no sense to them. Because for them, messiahs don't die, they thrive. Messiahs aren't crucified, they conquer. They defeat evil and injustice. They restore the kingdom of Israel. They claim the throne of David and bring peace to the land. And Jesus seemed to have the kind of power to be the military messiah. He's displayed enormous power and authority. He could be this military messiah that they've been waiting for. At the snap of his finger, he heals the sick, raises the dead, calms the storm, exercises demons, feeds the thousands. Who could stand in his way? I mean, the favorite Anglican miracle of all in turning water into wine. How wonderful is that? He's untouchable. Who, who can harm him? It seems like a ridiculous notion that he would suffer. It, it, it makes no sense whatsoever that he would be killed. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him in verse 32. Peter can accept that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, but not the Messiah who must suffer and die. One moment, Peter might be God's mouthpiece, but at this moment, he's a mouthpiece for the devil. And so Jesus turns to Peter and he says something that no one could ever have made up. Verse 33, he says to his best friend, get behind me, Satan. His best friend, his closest friend, his dearest disciple, get behind me, Satan. You see, when Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross to do what he must do, he calls Peter by the name of his greatest enemy, Satan. You see, at this very moment, Peter has become an agent of Satan. The voice behind Peter's voice is Satan's voice because he's tempting to do, tempting Jesus from doing what Jesus must do, and that's to die on the cross to save you and me. You see, any form of religion that doesn't have Jesus and the cross at its center is satanic. It's of the devil. We don't need Jesus to be a moral teacher or a good example. We've got enough of them around. What we need is a saviour who will save us from our sins. So Peter, the rock, has become the stumbling block. And he needs to get out of Jesus' way. Verse 33, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter wanted Jesus to fit into his Messiah box, but Jesus wasn't going to fit into anyone's box. He was here to do the Father's will. He wasn't here to do his friend's will. So he must suffer and must be rejected. He must die and must rise again. And, friends, maybe that's our problem with Jesus. Sometimes we want Jesus to fit into our neat little box. Sometimes we need to listen to Jesus afresh and be willing to accept him as he is, accept what he must do 
for us so that we may worship him as our personal saviour. Well, Jesus' plan might sound unbelievable, but it's true. And his command from verse 4 is equally unbelievable but necessary. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must, you see that word again, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Just as Jesus must go to the cross, so his disciples must carry their cross. Jesus gives up his life for us, and so we must give our lives up for him. It's pretty logical, isn't it? It makes sense. But it's not, like, it's not what we like to do. It's not what we like to hear, though, is it? We don't like this kind of teaching. If Jesus promises eternal life, we'll be like, yeah, great, I'll take that. Prosperity, I'm in too. Victory, absolutely. But suffering, death, cross, we don't like those things. Yet Jesus is saying that there's no genuine Christianity, no genuine discipleship without suffering, without death, without the cross. You see, if there's no salvation without the cross, then there's no true discipleship without the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian pastor who tried to stop Hitler, says it well. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and what? Come and die. That is, a Christian isn't someone who just says, Jesus is my king. A Christian is also someone who lives each and every day as Jesus, with Jesus as their king. And that means living a Jesus-centered life, not a self-centered life. It means living a cross-shaped life, a life that means sacrifice of putting Jesus first before my needs, before my wants. And so it might mean giving up a promotion so that you can sacrificially love your family and your church as you should. It might mean... Our children miss out on being part of Sunday sport if it meant them missing out on church every week. It might mean giving so generously to the work of the gospel that you have to save longer for a house deposit. And what I've seen in every one of you is costly discipleship. For years you have all carried your cross and followed Jesus. You have all denied yourself, even when it's been hard, even when it's been costly. And even now as we transition to a new phase in the life of our church, as we wear many hats and sit on many rosters, as we pray and love and trust and build each other up, you have all continued to carry your cross and follow Jesus. You've been obedient to Jesus. You've heard him. You're following him. You're carrying your cross. You're denying yourself. And I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for all that you do for Jesus. Because you've been such a great encouragement to me and my family to keep carrying our cross, 
to follow Jesus together with all of you. As you know, following Jesus is costly and it can be hard. But what we see, Jesus promise us, makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. When we deny ourselves of something now to get something better later, it makes that sacrifice worth it. It puts it all into perspective. So when we put away the Nintendo Switch to do our homework, we, we do better in our studies. When we give up on snacking on junk food to eat a proper meal, where we're healthier and feel better. When we give up Facebook for a moment to exercise, we're in better shape. All of us can think of sacrifices we've made to work towards something we value. And when we look back, we, we, we know, don't we? We realise that sacrifice was worth it. And Jesus is saying that you can gain the whole world. But what's the point? If you lose your life, you can indulge in every sin and lustful desire now, and you'll lose your life. You see, the most important thing you have isn't your car or your house, your money or your career. The most important thing you have is your life. Your life is the most valuable thing you have. Nothing beats it. There's no point having a large bank account when you're six feet under. There's no point dying with the most toys when you can't take it with you. You see, you don't work out how to save your life by losing it. You've lost your life. But if you lose your life to Jesus, deny yourself for Jesus, you'll not only save yourself, your reward is going to be great in heaven. Time magazine considers Jesus the most historically significant person in the world. That shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, Christianity has become the largest and most diverse religion, and its social impact over the centuries is immeasurable. In fact, much of the values of Western democracy that we take for granted find its genesis in the life and teaching of Jesus, such as servant leadership, the equality of all, the care for the poor, the sick and the marginalised, the dignity of women and children, and even the value of education. And so whether you're a Christian or not, a person like Jesus can't be ignored. He claims too much to be ignored. Muhammad never claimed to be God, and Buddha never claimed to build anything. But as you and I know, Jesus is God, and he is building his church from a dozen uneducated blokes who lived 2,000 years ago. There are now over 2 billion people 
from every almost every nation, tribe, and language who confess like Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and the gates of Hades have not overcome it. Friends, sooner or later, Jesus will ask you and me, who do you say I am? And your answer is the key to where you'll spend eternity. Just as there's a billion miles between the gates of Hades and the gates of heaven, so there's a billion miles between having respect for Jesus and having him as your personal Lord and Saviour King. As a community of people who say that Jesus is our suffering Saviour, who rose to be King of all, may we continue to encourage each other to persevere in faith. May we continue to love each other the way our servant king has loved us. May we continue to help others come to know our glorious king. And may we remind each other that all that we have sacrificed, all the ways we've carried our cross and denied ourselves, all that we've done in the name of Jesus is not in vain. And may we always know his love and goodness, the love and goodness of our suffering King, who is mighty to save. Amen.